0: The good news is the environmental laws are finally catching up in Asia. So the laws are coming into place, but enforcement and education are still works in progress. Southeast Asia has uh, is one of the most biodiverse marine areas in the world it's incredible but slowly because the oceans the open oceans are not regulated for fishing slowly we're overfishing um, our open oceans and you should definitely pay attention to where your fish is coming from
1: Hello, welcome to the Leaders of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Ling Ling. The Leaders of Learning is a podcast show that explores learning in the 21st century with educators, leaders, and entrepreneurs. For more information and to listen to our previous episodes, head over to our website at www.leadersoflearning.asia. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. In 2015, United Nations made a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that everyone enjoys peace and prosperity by 2030. This call to action is called the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or also known as Global Goals. The Global Goals consists of 17 areas that focuses on social, economic, and environmental sustainability. These areas range from ending poverty to reducing inequality to quality education, responsible consumption, and not forgetting climate action. However, sustainable development issues in Asia differ from other continents. Asia has the largest middle-class population compared to other continents, and the numbers are rising. Greater spending power leads to consuming more resources than what is available and faster than what the earth can provide or replenish. If action is not taken, we will no longer live in a world that is able to sustain human life. Each continent, each country, each person needs to do his or her part in achieving these goals. We in Asia are in a unique position to take the lead in solving many of these sustainability problems, and we don't have much choice. What can individuals and organizations do to create a sustainable world? Joining us is Marcy Trent Long, who is the host and producer of the Sustainable Asia podcast and Radio Hong Kong feature Trash Talk. Welcome to the show, Marcy. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Mind if you could share with our listeners what motivated you to start Sustainable Asia Podcast?
0: Sure. It's pretty easy. If you're a podcast lover, about 2 years ago you weren't able to hear anything about Asia, certainly nothing about sustainability from Asian voices. So I was doing some research with WWF here in Hong Kong, and I could go for a hike and I could learn all about energy efficiency in the US. But I was comparing that with energy efficiency in Asia. And I could learn nothing about it here in Asia through a podcast. And I wanted to go on more hikes. So I got frustrated. And I, as, as many of us do with podcasts, I started a podcast. And the, the goal would be to not only you know, educate about solutions coming out of Asia on sustainability issues, but also to use the voices of Asia to do it. Uh, Sustainable Asia podcast often has a mix of kind of global experts with experts in Asia kind of trying to address some of these key issues. It's just refreshing. If someone talks about Malaysia, they're going to be Malaysian on my show. That's the goal.
1: Excellent. A lot of the best ideas in the world do come from our own personal frustration. So I really, really love your podcast show. Just to all my listeners there, I'm a big fan of her show and you should listen to her <laughs> <a> show <laughs> when you have the chance. Thank yeah? you. <laughs> and I know based on the UN Sustainable Development Goals, sustainability issues can be of wide ranging from poverty alleviation to quality education to climate action all the works. For your podcast, what issues do you focus on?
0: Well, we started out focusing mostly on SDG 14, which is life below the water of the ocean. So our first six series focused on ocean plastic. We focused on endangered marine species. So there are certain types of fish and you know, maybe sharks, etc., that are actually endangered in the world. And how are people fishing that? How are people eating that? How are people protecting that? We looked at mining the deep, which is mining the ocean floor, and particularly a situation in Papua New Guinea where contractors were coming in and they were going to mine the ocean floor for metals. But the noise was going to be so loud, it would stop number of indigenous people from actually going out and hunting in the ocean and chase away all the fish, lots of complicated things. Um, And the last one, also, we did overfishing and how China got into the situation they're in right now with overfishing. They actually close most of their territorial waters in the ocean for six months a year to fishing because it's so overfished there. Uh, So we started in the ocean. And then in our last season seven, we moved on to pangolins and Life on Land, SDG 15. Biodiversity is a big deal this year because China is hosting, well, hopefully hosting in October, the UN Biodiversity Conference, which brings the focus of biodiversity here to Asia. And there is a lot of challenges protecting endangered species here. So we focus specifically on the illegal pangolin trade, which was a bit timely coming up to COVID-19, given that they've been tested to have the coronavirus in them. Finally, our last one, currently, we're doing a partnership with the University of Hong Kong specifically on COVID-19. So we're shortening the series a little bit and doing 10-minute pieces twice a week just to get as much information out there as possible. On COVID-19 and that would be SDG 3 well-being. So we named it Sustainable Asia so that if we last for more 10 years, we have plenty of SDGs and content to go through.
1: I'm sure you can last beyond (laughs) 10 years. There are so many issues and challenges in the world when it comes to sustainability and you're only covering Asia. So Asia itself have a lot of challenges and issues and all the different shows that you have produced and all the different topics that you've investigated from plastics to fishing, to looking for metals, to pangolins. What is the most surprising thing that you have learned from, from these investigative reports?
0: Key things that we've found is that once people in Asia actually understand the importance of protecting the planet, they're really motivated to change. I would argue motivated than my fellow Americans sometimes. So once we start better waste management, start recycling, protecting species, I find that people get really excited about it. But one of the main things we also have to respect each other's cultural differences In how we manage an example would be in 8 million, which is about why so much plastic going into the ocean from China and China decided that they are going to solve the plastic problem through incineration, meaning they don't have time to set plants. They don't want people doing it by hand. It's not good for well-being. So they're basically just going to burn it for now until they can get the recycling going. And I'll give another example, which we talk about in the pangolin one. People are um, very focused on this because it was, you know, most likely that uh, the coronavirus came from animals to humans, and it came Mm -hmm. through the wildlife trade. So Mm -hmm. it's quite easy to China and say, oh, they're eating too much wildlife, you know, and they're not being sanitary about it. But the reality is, Lots of people eat lots of weirds, right? They hunt pheasants in England. Japan loves their whales. People have eat bushmeat all around the world. So it's actually a global problem, not a China problem.
1: When you look at these sustainability issues that you take into consideration, the cultural aspect of it and how each culture or each country choose to tackle the issues and challenges of sustainability can be different. And even though the way we approach our goals is different, we have to respect that because they know their own situation, they know what resources are available and they have their own set of values. You
0: know, as an individual, isn't it the most important that you make some steps forward? So you may choose to be vegan, right? But other people do not want to be vegan and, and that's fine too. But if we all kind of move towards just getting caring about our waste, if we move towards, oh, okay, well then I'm going to eat meat, but I'm going to make sure that it's farm to table if I can, or I'm going to eat fish, but I'm going to make sure that it's sustainably sourced. So we can all have dinner together.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Of course.
0: (laughs) And we can all work together and we can all have different views on it, but we're all at least making that attempt and respecting the planet and its natural resources.
1: Based on your work with the podcast show, do you see any current trends when it comes to sustainability in Asia? Do you see us getting closer to meeting our goals or are we moving away? Is there something that is an elephant in the room that nobody wants to address and we should watch out for? What do you see?
0: Uh, It's interesting you said elephant in the room. I actually wrote that as one of my responses. So, um, you know, the good news is the environmental laws are finally catching up in Asia. So the laws are coming into place, but enforcement and education are still works in progress. So I'll give an example again for the pangolin trade and the illegal wildlife trade. Most countries in Asia have very good wildlife conservation laws, and they've signed on to international agreements to protect the pangolins. But the enforcement is not really quite there yet, and the education of the importance of biodiversity is also maybe not quite there. In other words, people don't realize the pangolins are endangered. And I suspect that most people, if they realized it, would not work on poaching them, for instance. Or if they realized it, they, they might not want to eat it or they might not want it in their traditional Chinese medicine. So enforcement is still needs a little bit of work, but there's no question that a difference between now and 10 years ago is substantial in terms of improvement.
1: Ah, all right. So it's great to see that there are improvements, even though the media talks about how there's so much we still need to do. Because sometimes when we're overwhelmed with all this negative media, we think that we're not progressing. But it's good to hear that we are in some ways. Definitely.
0: The perfect example is air pollution and water pollution, right? The water pollution, the water quality in Asia is much better than it used to be, certainly in rivers, for example. Don't you remember growing up, you know, the stench that might come from the rivers? And that, you know, that's changing quite a bit. And the second one would be air pollution levels. They probably hit their peak, I would say, about five to 10 years ago. Now, they're still, they're still quite bad in India. But they've been improving substantially in China and i think they've been slowly improving in southeast asia as well
1: oh i was quite surprised when you mentioned about air pollution because i remember being in china in beijing and shanghai between 2012 and 2016 or 15 every time i went there's this fog that you know sits on the city and when i asked the locals what what's this fog and they say oh it's the changing of the season and it's only <laughs> afterwards i realize it's like okay it's air pollution <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so glad to hear that it's it substantially improved since I last went to China. Very much so. Do you see education and enforcement of these laws as the biggest challenge in Asia? And is it the same or different with the rest of the world? The biggest challenge is really transparency. So an interesting story
0: with Beijing and air quality is that back during the time that you were visiting Beijing, the U.S. embassy actually for their own people started putting out on the web the actual air quality index that they were measuring on the top of their embassy. And then that word got out to the rest of Beijing. And it was kind of a bit of an embarrassment because, as you say, the word in the news was, oh, it's fine. It's not so bad. Uh, but once this new information about how bad it actually was, you know, people were understandably quite upset. So I think the biggest challenge in Asia is getting comfortable with this data transparency of what the pollutants are. And in the 60s and the 70s, what transformed, I feel, the US regulatory environmental laws was this requirement that factories, plants, all of them, make public all of their pollutants. So if I was living a mile down from a factory, I knew exactly what their pollutant levels are. I can find that on the internet. And I can also find how that compares with what the standards are, right? So it's not only putting in the regulations, and of course there's enforcement as well, but it's getting comfortable with really explaining and and being honest about what's happening with the environment around all of the citizens.
1: I know you've lived in Asia for the last 20 years or so. What do you C is the main reason why data transparency is, is such a challenge to make it happen here in Asia. Is it because it's so difficult to collect data or is it because people don't understand the data? Why is data transparency not there?
0: Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that governments tend to control data and information a little bit more in Asia. Obviously, it depends on the country, Right. And, and, and that's okay, too, in Asia, because people trust the government more than they do. The, in the U.S., no one trusts the government, which creates its own problems, right? So some of it is that the government controls the flow of information a little bit more in Asia. And the other one is what you said, which is the collection of data is really just starting. And you, you have to have good scientific research and good data in order to make effective environmental policies. And a perfect example of that is what's happening with COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. So researchers are sharing the data that's coming from people that are diagnosed with coronavirus, what their symptoms are. And if countries aren't honest, with that data, and they're not transparent about it, then we as a civil society are not going to be able to move forward to prevent the next coronavirus, for instance.
1: Now that we're talking about COVID-19, and we are actually in the middle of COVID-19 as we are recording this episode. (laughs) So sad, (laughs) quarantined. I believe that we're going to come out just fine after this. And hopefully, it'll change a lot of things for the better because it's forcing the whole world to sit down and reflect of all the destruction we have done in com- this world. I, I hope so. I'm just crossing I fingers. Com-
0: yeah, I completely <laughs> agree. And I share in your optimism. We keep, we keep coming out of it. Okay,
1: right? Well, we've survived. Do you know how many extinctions already? <laughs> Five. <laughs> Five extinctions. That's right. We've survived millions and millions of years. I'm sure we can survive our own destruction, right? <laughs> my My question to you is, what are your thoughts about this pandemic, and is it linked to sustainability? How is that so?
0: All right, well, it is linked to sustainability because um, well first of all, I let me just big take a backtrack and say, I hope all of your listeners' families are healthy and safe, and our hearts reach out to everyone who's kind of suffering during this time. Because there's a lot of economic challenges right now. So that's one. Now, why is it related to sustainability? Well, I mentioned before about the pangolins. You know, we, we survived SARS previously. And most infectious diseases experts believe that the coronavirus actually started in wild bats and transferred them to an intermediary host like a pangolin. And then on to humans in the wet markets of Wuhan. So it's an SDG 15 issue of protecting biodiversity. It's also an SDG 6 issue of like proper sanitation. And as we mentioned before, also, I mean, it is a global issue. It's not just China and their wet markets consuming wildlife, but bushmeat is consumed all over the world. So we as humans, I think, need to start appreciating that animals should be treated well. If we are going to consume them, that's fine. That's a certain choice. But you need to treat them well or they're going to become ill, and that illness may jump to humans, just like it did with the coronavirus. The other one is that many animals are actually losing their habitat Mm -hmm. due to deforestation. So our link between humans and animals are slowly Coming closer. And that's the infectious disease problem, is that viruses live on a host of like an animal normally. And they could coexist with the bat for years, maybe a century, happily. But when they jump to another species, that's when they create disease. So we have to be really careful now on how we live with wildlife how we protect them and how we interact them with them on a daily basis
1: it's interesting how you mentioned about the disease or the virus in one animal host the bats that go to the pangolins that go to the wuhan market where the people there they buy these exotic meats for their own consumption But it makes me wonder, this consumption comes from our own traditions and our own beliefs of what this exotic meat can help us with. It could be medicinal, it could help us make make us look, think smarter, whatever it may be. And these beliefs and these traditions are really deep rooted in us, especially in Asia. So my question to you would be, would it be possible to change our beliefs and our traditions in order for us to be more sustainable. And if we can do that, is there a way to make this change faster?
0: <laughs> Definitely, right? This is this is the optimistic, you know, Ling Ling and Marcy show in a way. <laughs> 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 Complete optimism. And the point of the podcast is to find solutions, right? Not just lay blame. So so it's easy. With individuals, it's just as we said, the important thing is little steps. Just change your daily life just a little bit. Maybe recycle a couple things more. Maybe don't drink as many plastic water bottles. Maybe buy sustainable seafood. And if we all do just a few small things like that, it makes... A really big difference, you know, cumulatively in the world. But I'll also mention another thing for kind of maybe some of the company corporate people in your audience, and that's supply chain technology is really changing the way we consume. So, our next season actually, we're going to be looking at it's called the Plastic First Mile, and it's how we get the plastic water bottle from your hand to the recycling facility which is the hardest part in Asia and in a lot of cases in the world. But the point being there that now they're even looking at putting kind of a little QR code kind of thing on a plastic water bottle. So Coca-Cola can trace the water bottle and know how many of their uh, plastic bottles are actually getting to recycling centers or Other supply chain technology is being used, certainly in in terms of informatics, where people are able to trace down to almost the bean of where a coffee bean came from. So the next leap forward is really going to be about that supply chain technology, so that you and I, when we consume, buy a fish in the grocery store, or we buy a plastic water bottle, we might actually have information right there to say, oh, this water bottle was 50% recycled or is made of 50% recycled content. But what's going to help a lot with that is going to be some of these new supply chain technologies.
1: You mentioned earlier that so long as we as individuals take little actions every day make conscious choices of what we choose to eat what we choose to consume what we choose to buy that will be enough cumulatively to make an impact on the world is that truly enough and if we do need to be mindful of certain actions what kind of action do you believe that each individuals need to do to make a greater impact is it just being mindful about plastics we buy glass bottles and not plastic bottles or we bring a wh- what is that action
0: well let's just take a simple action which is what you consume so when you go to the grocery store look for eco labels there are um, fair trade is a great label to purchase they're not expensive and when you go to their website you can see the products that you're buying kind of where and how they're sourcing uh, those products. So they're making sure the farmers are paid adequately. They're making sure that it's not organic but necessarily, but it's going to be maybe pesticide minimized. And they're making sure that everywhere from along the supply chain, people are treated well, animals are treated well, that's under the company called Fair Trade. There's also eco-labels, a lot of eco-labels for fishing. And I think in Southeast Asia, it's very important that when people buy fish, they understand where the fish is coming from. Because soon what's happened in China with overfishing, for instance, could move into Southeast Asia as well. Southeast Asia has uh, is one of the most biodiverse marine areas in the world. It's incredible. But slowly, because the oceans, the open oceans are not regulated for fishing, slowly we're overfishing our open oceans and you should definitely pay attention to where your fish is coming from.
1: Oh wow, that's fantastic advice to be conscious of what we consume and making sure that we know where it's being sourced. I think that's really important. Also, there's <laughs> one avocado that is flown from Peru. Oh, I know. I, right? I could find that in in my local supermarket, right? Then you have to think, oh, all that. If that's a lot of carbon emission there.
0: You mentioned that you're vegetarian or vegan and someone told me the statistic that if you go vegetarian for three years and if you live in Hong Kong right and we travel a lot from Hong Kong uh, people do in Hong Kong because you can't drive anywhere and <laughs> it's equivalent to only one flight to the U.S. going vegetarian for three years.
1: Oh wow, that's amazing!
0: Yeah, so I mean, COVID nineteen. We're going to see. I mean, it's going to be a couple percentage points off. Degree <laughs> the 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 world is cooling as we speak, right? Because we're not going on airplanes right now. So so climate change. Most of the foundations that I talk to here, they're a lot. Enviro- if they do environmental work, they're refocusing what they do all under the world of climate change. So you want to protect species. That's important. You care about plastic ocean, etc. cetera. But the big question out there is going to be climate change. Who knows? Yes. But we're
1: going to figure it out, right? We're going to find solutions, right? Yeah, I love your optimism, Marcy, and I'm <laughs> glad to have you on the show. This is this is not to dismiss the fact that COVID-19 is making a lot of people suffer out there. A lot of people are are dying out there. People are losing their jobs and losing their business. We recognize that. So our optimism is not to, to dismiss all of that. But we hope that coming out of this, at least I hope that we will rethink the way we live on this planet so that we can live on it longer and in better quality and helping the world to to be more sustainable. Well said. So as we're winding up today's show, what one key advice can you give to our listeners from our conversation today?
0: So I would think a good piece of advice, I'm going to pull it from our current COVID-19 series, actually. Uh, But it applies to all you know, eco-anxiety around climate change and and around the planet. And that is that one of the best strategies for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic is to understand why it happened in the first place so we can make sure it doesn't happen again. So the episodes on Sustainable Asia are really targeted so that people can understand what's really happening to sustainability issues in Asia? Why are they happening? And what can we do to change things in a way uh, to protect the planet better?
1: Good one. That's a really good advice. If our listeners would like to reach out to you, how can they do so? Oh, um,
0: the normal. We're on all the uh, podcast platforms, Sustainable Asia podcast. We have a website, SustainableAsia.co, and someone can send us a message through that. They can message me personally, Marcy Trent Long, on LinkedIn or Twitter. And they can uh, message Sustainable Asia on Facebook at SustainableAsia.co.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Marcy. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, ling Lang. It was a pleasure. That was Marcy Trent Long, host and producer of the Sustainable Asia podcast and Radio Hong Kong Feature Trash Talk. This is our final interview for Season 5. Join us next week as we summarize the best moments from all our guests in Season 5. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, take a moment to rate and review us wherever you download your podcast. Follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also visit our website at www.leadersoflearning.asia to listen to our previous episodes. If you believe this podcast show will help a colleague, friend, or family member, please share this episode with them via social media or your podcast app. I'm your host, Ling Ling. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast.